So would you say you got a better shot at them going in and not so much coming out? You could say that. I did say that. Would you say that? Chester and I paid for his lawyer's condo in Aspen and my lawyer's condo in Maui. They're very happy. They're going to trade once a year. I would love to sue them, only it would mean hiring another lawyer. Meanwhile, at the Hall of Justice, the Super Friends... Welcome to Opening Arguments, the podcast that breaks down the law behind all the news stories you care about. This podcast is sponsored by the Law Offices of P. Andrew Torres, LLC, for entertainment purposes, is not intended as legal advice, and does not form an attorney-client relationship. Don't take legal advice from a podcast. Hey guys, I'm Liz Dye, with me is Andrew Torres, and this is Opening Arguments, episode 858. Hey Liz, I have to say, highlight of my day getting to do the show with you. How you doing? Always. Always. How are you? Well, the aforementioned. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, today is going to be mostly Trump because uh, he makes a lot of news. Yep. So we're going to start with a little update in the D.C. election interference case. As we told you guys last week, Trump and his flopper lawyers moved to hold <laughs> the special counsel Jack Smith and his deputies, Molly Gaston and Thomas Windham, in contempt of court for aggravated document filing. <laughs> you know, this was a new one on me. Like, I have never been involved in litigation in which the other side has thrown a temper tantrum because they got documents too early. <laughs> yeah. I, look, they're just making a fuss to make a fuss. That's what uh-huh. they do. That's that's the long and short of it. Basically, this case has stayed while Trump makes his doomed appeal to the D.C. Circuit on grounds of magical presidential immunity in all perpetuity. Yeah. Um, the prosecutors delivered discovery and they filed a motion in limine to prevent Trump from introducing his stupid chaos monkey theories that he's being witch hunted by the FBI to cover up for the fact that China stole the election for Biden or whatever. Yeah. Actually, U- Ukraine has Hillary's servers, right? Yeah. She, right. For sure. And actually, he's running a similar play in Florida. We'll we'll come back to that one. Oh, and, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then Trump's lawyers, John Laro and Todd Blanche, said that this motion in limine was disregarding an order of the court because it imposed a massive extra burden on them. I A burden to do what? I mean, let me be pollutedly clear for our non-lawyers among our audience. They do not even have to look at that stuff until... The case gets remanded back to Judge Chutkin and the stay is lifted. Yeah, well, that that's exactly what the government said. But Judge Chutkin has bent over backwards to be fair here. And, and, and to deny Trump any possible grounds for appeal. Right, that too. So today, she kind of heaved a heavy sigh at having to mediate this <laughs> bullshit and issued an order denying the motion for contempt because... Obviously, there were two interpretations of the stay order, right? Like that she said, I'm not going to decide anything. And the government said, OK, we'll just continue to post our shit. And Laura and Blanche said that's in complete contravention of the order. But the order greatest witch hunt clear. in American history, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She said that there was no burden on defense counsel from discovery being delivered. Obviously, but Uh she did agree that, quote, diligent defense counsel will need to conduct a preliminary review of each substantive motion the government files in order to know whether they need to take further action. While this is not a major burden, it is a cognizable one. So, I mean, okay, fine. She, She told the government to knock it off with the motions, quote, without first seeking leave from the court. All right. So if I parse this out, 
if if the DOJ wants to file a motion, they have to first file a motion asking to file a motion, and then Trump has to respond with a motion saying he opposes the filing of a motion, and all of that is to make sure that they don't have the burden of responding to motions. Do I have this right? Yeah. As a lawyer I follow on Blue Sky named Connor Lynch noted, this means that after Trump's attorneys complained that the government's filings in the J6 case imposed too much litigation burden, Judge Ketkin's remedy is now to have an additional round of ancillary briefing for leave to file each document, LOL. This this is achingly stupid, right? But it is. Fortunately, may not go on for much longer, right? On Thursday night, as we record this, the D.C. Circuit has not yet issued its ruling. But, like, we played you all those clips last week of Trump's lawyer, John Sauer, just getting, you know, bodied by judges, Pan Childs, and even Karen LeCraft Henderson. And, you know, considering that that panel set a land speed record for briefing, I I thought it was possible we might get a ruling as early as a week ago. I think it is very likely we will get that ruling tomorrow, maybe even by the time you're listening to this. Yes. Well, speaking of. Oh, God. No. (laughs) You see what's in the script. A president of the United States must have full immunity, without which it would be impossible for him slash her to properly function. Any mistake, even if well-intended, would be met with almost certain indictment by the opposing party at term end. Even events that, quote, cross the line must fall under total immunity, or it will be years of trauma trying to determine good from bad. There must be certainty. Example, you can't stop police from doing the job of strong and effective crime prevention because you want to guard against the occasional rogue cop or bad apple. Sometimes uh, ca- you just counterpoint. have to... Yes, you fucking can. (laughs) Sorry. I'm not done. Sometimes you just have to live with great but slightly imperfect. All presidents must have complete and total presidential immunity or the authority and decisiveness of a president of the United States will be stripped and gone forever. Hopefully this will be an easy decision. God bless the Supreme Court. Okay. (laughs) I don't think that was written by Donald Trump, right? Like that. I think that was written by. I mean, it was in all caps. Yeah, it, it he, is in all he caps. He often does but, get that caps lock, Stista. Well, true. But look, I guess whoever is authoring Donald Trump's burps these days is all in on the SEAL Team 6 theory that, you know, the president can order the assassination of a political opponent. And, you know, if the Senate fails to convict after impeachment, he can never be prosecuted ever in perpetuity throughout the universe. You know, it's a bold strategy, Cut. Yes, yes, it is. And speaking of bold... Alina Haba, come on down. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Look, yeah. I have to say that this has been the lone bright spot in what has been a, a challenging week. But yeah, wow. Yeah. So Tuesday, after Alina gave her opening arguments, I said on the show that she did at least a credible job. That 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 show dropped on Wednesday, yesterday morning, as we are recording this. And then Carol immediately took the stand to testify, and I got this text from my brother that said, had to be this week you were saying nice things about Alina's lawyer And <laughs> My brother is also a lawyer, and our parents go no. Anyway, <laughs> you may infer from this that things got worse in the courtroom during that second E. Jean Carroll defamation trial this week. Yeah, but before we get too deep into the dumpster fire that is Alina Hoppe attempting to cross-examine E. Jean Carroll, like, I just want to clock something that a lot of people are not paying attention to. And that is that the first thing 
Judge Lewis Kaplan said in that case on Wednesday morning before the jury came back in was to pose a bunch of questions to the lawyers about Trump's theory of the case. Right. According to Inner City Press, which is a guy named Matthew Russell Lee, who uh, is live tweeting the trial from New York and God bless him, the, the court asked the parties, is mitigation of damages an affirmative defense? And if so, is it waived? Is the defense even applicable to a defamation case? And if so, which side has the burden of proof and what must be proved to satisfy that burden? And then he pointed them to a 1919 New York Court of Appeals case, that's the New York Supreme Court, called Norska America Lange versus Sun PP Association. I think that's printing press. Yes, yes. Yeah. And let me just get my law to English translator out on that one before you get too deep into the weeds. <laughs> okay, fair, fair. Generally, with a tort, the victim has a responsibility to mitigate the damages. And you and I talked about this a little bit on Wednesday. That was your hypo about me. I don't. I think it was like stepping on your foot and you failing to go to the doctor so that it got gangrenous and had to be amputated. Yeah, I think you stabbed you, me, but, but either way, yeah. <laughs> I mean, all right. Seems a little unlike me. Uh, anyway, you, <laughs> in either cool. scenario, had a responsibility to mitigate the harm from the injury I caused you. And while we're on the topic, thanks to everyone who wrote in to say that the president who got shot and died from bad medical care was Garfield, especially Cameron Atkinson, who tagged me on Twitter. Yeah. And and my buddy, Bruce Little, who wrote me a nice email. So, yeah, a, a bunch of folks pointed that out. James Garfield. There you go. There you go. Anyway, Haba argued in her opening that Carol had an obligation to mitigate her damages from Trump's defamation by, I don't know, lying low or something. And instead, she went on TV and argued with people on Twitter or whatever. And later, Haba tried to make Carol read all of these mean replies to a tweet where she said something like, I think she said, the most dangerous woman in the world is a woman who has nothing to lose. That's what Uh she tweeted around the time that the story first broke. And so Haba made her read all of these responses to that tweet that, you know, and and I'm not sure what she thought she was going to accomplish by forcing an elderly woman to read, no one would touch your ugly ass and various death threats (sighs) in open court. it's a choice. Yeah, it, it, it was quite a choice. And I do not think that the court was impressed either. Anyway, Haba said they would not have been able to speak to you if you were not on Twitter at that time. So basically implying that Carol shouldn't be tweeting if she didn't want abuse or something and that tweeting was failing to mitigate damages because she should have, I don't know, gone into a hidey hole. This all sounds crazy when you say it out loud. And I'm pretty sure it sounded crazy in court. But (laughs) from a legal perspective, what Judge Kaplan is saying is maybe this is not a thing. That's what he was saying when he was, you know, ordering the parties to brief this issue. Yeah. And let's break that down because, you know, there's nothing I enjoy more than, you know, Lochner era, turn of the 20th century cases, <laughs> children slaving away in the asbestos mines for 18 hours a day, like uh, the delightfully mad Latin phrases, right? Look, here's what you need to know. In 1919, this corporation, it's not a person. So that's how you know it had rights in 1919. Anyway, so uh, uh, they sued Sun Printing Publishing Association for bad shit that Sun said about Norska American Leinske in its newspapers. And so part of what Norska American Leinske sued for was the money that it spent publishing denials of the offending article that ran, quote, for the purpose of averting and minimizing its damages. Okay, So the question in that case was, 
does a defamation plaintiff have the obligation to minimize their damages such that they can recover for those amounts spent from the side that defamed them? And the New York Court of Appeals said, yes, sort of, right? They said that the plaintiff that was defamed can recover in defamation for the amounts they've spent trying to mitigate the harm that the defamer said about them. So you can see how that's Chase, it's close to do you as the plaintiff have an obligation to mitigate your defamation damages? And again, in our last episode, when you stabbed me, because that's what you do, I I, I just assumed that that was the rule in New York. Right. So here's the takeaway. The fact that Judge Kaplan is like, well, maybe you don't have an obligation to mitigate your damages would be even more bad news for Trump. You know, if all of this wasn't already a, a giant L. Yeah. I I mean, I, t- I take your point. I, mm-hmm. I tend to think, just as a practical matter here, that it might not wind up mattering to the jury because, you know, in the first trial, Trump was represented really ably by Joseph Takapina. And, you know, you and I said some some nasty words about him because and we thought we will he did again. Some, <laughs> I'm sure, Well, maybe. I mean, because he did what we thought were sort of some sleazy shit or he you know he he did try that last minute maneuver to try and get the dress in and whatever but he's a very experienced trial lawyer and he didn't do this he was not out of his depth the way alina haba is in the deep end of the pool without the little floaties on yes correct and i i think her partner mike medio is (laughs) worse so so i I, in some sense Like, what are they going to do? You know, like, this is going to be a devastating award, I think most observers feel like. So, I I mean, I'm not trying to minimize your your legal analysis, but I also think it's going to kind of at the end be like that Simpsons thing where they're like, stop, stop, he's already dead. (laughs) Like, I think it's going to be really bad. I agree. So, leaving aside this issue, which we'll hear about on Friday, let's talk about the insane shit show that has been the past couple of days of this trial. So on Wednesday morning, immediately after that exchange and before the jury came in, Haba whined some more about how unfair it was that Trump couldn't be there for the whole trial because of Melania's mother's funeral already. Funeral on Thursday. You know, (laughs) we've talked about it being a bold strategy, Cotton. When you get caught lying in open court and saying, my client can't be there on Wednesday because he's traveling. And what you mean is he's going to a rally in New Hampshire. Like, I did doubling down is, um, it's a strategy. I would shut the hell up, but, you know, that's that's just me. <laughs> yeah, I, I think she did that in a pleading and not in open court. I think she just continued to try and press for this, you know, I need a postponement. Like, no, bitch. Yeah. Um, anyway. It did not go over with the court. Judge Kaplan said, I have ruled, sit down. And Haba said, I don't like to be spoken to that way. Please refrain. I am asking for an adjournment for a funeral. <laughs> and Judge Kaplan said, denied, sit down. So, alrighty, this is going great. I, Alina Haba's ability to affect being offended by the way she's being spoken to in open court is... Um, it's a skill of a sort. Yeah. So Carol was the first witness. And look, she's she's pretty sympathetic. Yeah. She's this beautiful but frail 80-year-old woman. She survived a sexual assault. She kept quiet about it 
for a long time and then she didn't and mm. she suffered a lot because yeah. of what she did and okay she has complicated feelings about this right she's been alive for eight decades she's lived through a real sea change in the way that we think about sexual assault and she's done things that are complicated right she's told right. friends i'm fine when she wasn't fine right she's texted friends there's evidence that she did that and I think women can relate to that. I do not think that that's going to be a difficult thing for women on the jury and probably even men on the jury to understand. Like, she's by herself in a hotel room in the dark watching these death threats roll in on social media, and she's still texting her friends, don't worry, I'm okay. Right. I mean, yeah, no shit she did, right? What was she supposed to do? And then... Alina Haba objects to every question during the direct examination where Carol looked super sympathetic. And Alina Haba keeps jumping up and making herself look like an asshole. And <laughs> yeah, I mean, a lot of it is, is funny, right? Because she's, as you said, she's her federal trial experience has not prepared her for this. Oh, 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 yeah. Like you mean like the time when Judge Kaplan said, Ms. Haba, when you speak in this courtroom or any other courtroom, you'll stand up? Yeah, like just as an example, is that is that a rule most lawyers know, Andrew? Yeah, yeah, that's a thing you figure out when you're second or third chairing, and like you know you're twelve minutes old, admitted to the bar, and I yeah, um, yeah. but not if you're Alina Haba. <laughs> yeah, how about that time when she jumped up in the middle of Carol's direct examination by her own counsel, and Alina said, "I will be addressing this on cross," and the court was like, <laughs> "We'll see. I don't need announcements." I, I, it is not the only time that Judge Kaplan has said one of two things to Alina Haba, right? Either, number one, there will be one lawyer objecting per witness. So, no, you don't get to tag team with Muppet on, yeah. on announcing objections in, in court. And number two, the amount of times that Judge Kaplan has said, I expect to hear objection followed by one word and not random speeches. But uh, yeah. yeah. So one of the things that Haba was trying to do was to impeach Carol as a witness with, you know, picayune shit. Like yeah. she said, so you moved away from Montana. Did you like Montana? And Carol was like, yeah, I liked Montana. And she's like, well, I'm going to impeach you now by saying that you thought Montana was boring. Like, who the hell cares? And and she made this like enormous deal about it, but trying to introduce so like evidence in this weird way. So here's the exchange as reported by Inner City Press. So Judge Kaplan says, Ms. Haba, we're going to do it my way in this courtroom, and that's how it's going to be. You tell me the line number, and I read it. Then we go from there, right? She's trying to get the part of the transcript where Carol made this great, you know, impeaching admission that she thought Montana was boring. And Haba says, I was reading. And then Kaplan says, we're going to take a recess. You will provide me with the line numbers, et cetera. He says, you will provide me with the line numbers. Do not read them out loud. What are the line numbers? And then Haba gives him the line numbers. And he's. And then the court says, what are you doing? Are you offering this into evidence? And she says, I'm offering it as impeachment. Those are two different things. And at this point, and this is a very common theme, Judge Kaplan says, those are two different things. And when I say this is a common theme, I mean Judge Kaplan has made a dozen two dozen comments throughout this trial that lets the jury know that Alina that he thinks that Alina Haba has no ability to try a case in federal court. Right. It is just his disdain for her lack of experience is obvious. He's said things like, why don't we take a few minutes while you familiarize yourself with the federal rules? Right. So here's what's happening in state court. There are sometimes different reasons why you can offer 
deposition testimony into evidence, right? So for example, in Maryland, if you take the deposition of a party opponent, you can read their deposition stuff straight to the jury. That's just part of the state law. In federal court, you can't do that, right? If you want to use someone's deposition testimony, you have to explain why you're offering that into the court. And the principal reason to do so is for impeachment, right, is to say, what I'm going to show is that previously this person is now testifying A and before they testified not A. And critically, what you're doing is you're not saying that A is a fact or that not A is a fact. You're just setting up that classic question. I've said this on the show before. Were you lying then or are you lying now? Right. About Montana. <laughs> right. Well, about something that no one gives a shit about. That's the thing is, it's the reason why I kind of went through that in painstaking detail, because as a lawyer, when you offer something for the purpose of impeachment, you should be offering it thinking that the question you are going to say to the jury is, well, Ms. Carroll, which is it? Were you lying then or are you lying now? And if phrasing that question in your mind would cause you to say, okay, well, that's going to seem really goddamn stupid if we're talking about how did you like Montana, then maybe you're not doing actual impeachment. Yeah. And look, we've got this other example about uh, her making representations to the court. Do you want to talk about that one? Oh, I do. But, but, but first, I have to read the last part of the colloquy because oh, after okay. Judge Kaplan says, you know, offering something into evidence and offering his impeachment are two different things. Hoppe said, well, she said two different things about Montana. And Judge Kaplan said, yeah, she said it's great. And before, meaning in the deposition, she said, it's boring. That's your difference? And then Hoppe says, well, I can ask another question. Judge Kaplan said, that would be a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you want to talk about this, her trying to make representations in the trial? Yeah. So we just talked about you can use a deposition to impeach the testimony of a witness. You can also use it, for example, if the witness is unavailable, right? Like if they've died in between taking their deposition and going to trial, or if they fled the jurisdiction or something like that. And when you're using it for those latter purposes, you are actually introducing something into evidence, right? You are not just saying, hey, first you said Montana's a shithole, and now you just said, like, I love Montana, right? Like, no, you're actually introducing affirmative evidence about the state of Montana or whatever when mm -hmm. you try and use, you, you try and read from a deposition transcript into the record. Or you could just do it Alina's way. <laughs> you you want to read that bit? Right. So Haba says it, it was part of a longer colloquy about whether it was the White House statement which damaged her reputation or Trump's statement on, you know, on the helipad. So Haba says, do you know if there's a communications team at the White House? And Carol says, I don't know. And Haba says, I represent to you that it does. Um, <laughs> and Kaplan says, you're not going to be representing anything or you'll be a witness. And again, this illustrates Alina Haba's lack of trial experience, right? Because that construction, I'm going to represent to you that X, is a thing that you do in depositions, right? Like, because 
look, when you're taking a witness in when when you're deposing a witness, sometimes they will be difficult, right? They know, you know, they they're the defendant or they're employed by the defendant or whatever, and they're trying not to give you the answer that you want. And so you'll say something like, so you had an obligation to pay my client overtime, right? And a squirrely witness will say something like, well, assuming that she was working overtime hours. And and then you'll say something like, you know, Mr. Dye, for purposes of this deposition, I represent to you that my client had worked 87 hours that week. Right. Understanding that, you would have an obligation to pay her overtime, correct? And then that pins them down and they can't give a like wishy-washy answer. You can't do that at trial, right? The reason that you ask that you represent that in the question is so that you can then use that as impeachment to force them at trial to not give a contradictory answer. But you have to actually establish that she worked the 87 hours of, of that week. Like you can't just say it randomly in front of the jury is crazy. Yeah. So Haba made a bunch of those kinds of errors. <laughs> and then around three o'clock, the judge was like, no, we are not going to read out loud a document not in evidence. We are going to take a break right here to 3.30 and you're going to go refresh your memory about how you get a document <laughs> in, um, which is which is not good. It's not a good thing. I did, there's, as I said, and in fact, I want to throw the question to you, Liz, because I have been in both a bench trial and a jury trial in which the other side's lawyer sort of got, you know, condescended to by the judge. Right. Yeah. And, I, you know, and there's a part of you that's like, oh, look, it's cute. The judge is trying to help this person out. But I, I always felt in front of the jury that like they, they would sort of look at this and be like, uh, OK, the, the judge is trying to signal to me that the other side is incompetent and has incompetent representation. And that that's not the side we should rule in favor of. Yeah, I it's I was thinking we would discuss this later, but now is as good a time as anyway. Like we have a million more examples of how Alina's in over way out over her skis. But I, I think this is something that we've talked about a whole bunch, right, that Trump has gotten himself to a place where he either is only able to hire terrible lawyers or only willing to hire terrible mm -hmm. lawyers, right? I mean, I think that Todd Blanche, who represents him, and, and even John Laro, they're, they're reputable lawyers. They have to say disreputable bullshit right. to represent him. But here, Takapina did a really good job in the first trial, and Trump didn't want him because Takapina wouldn't let Trump testify. And now he's got Alina Haba, who was her biggest gig to date was, you know, they call her the parking lot lawyer. What nobody realizes is that her husband owned the parking lot, right? <laughs> she was the she was the in-house counsel for a parking lot company owned by her spouse. She's way, way, way out over her skis here. Yeah. And that's who Trump wants. He wants somebody who will be obnoxious and grandstand and you know, that might play at a MAGA rally or on Newsmax, but I agree with you. I don't think it's going to play in this courtroom. And the, and the judge is doing everything he can to signal to the jury that this lawyer is incompetent and an asshole, which, yeah. to be fair, true. And also, uh, Alina herself is doing quite a bit to, yeah, was, to, to broadcast that to all. Help. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. I mean, they came back after the break and almost immediately she had not clearly figured out how to enter something into evidence. Um, she, she says to... 
Carol, did you receive tweets in the five hours before President Trump spoke? And Carol says, I hadn't seen them. And Kaplan says, do not get into content. And Haba said, how do you suggest I proceed? Kaplan's like, you show it to her and ask if she recognizes it. And Haba (laughs) says, do you recognize it? Carol says, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Judge Kaplan says, it's not marked. It should be marked. Do it appropriately. Do it overnight. They need to be pre-marked. Okay. So, and and that, I'm just reading it to you as it is in the, as it is, you know, by the person who was in the room. You are. And let me say, in the first trial in which I participated, I was cross-examining my first witness. I was second chair, right? I did mm-hmm. not get to run the whole Did you thing. remember to stand up when I addressing did, the court? I did remember to stand up. And I was That's cross-examining nice. the witness that I had done a pretty good job during our deposition, right? Like this was this was a lot of fun. This witness had been holding their reading glasses in their hands and sort of twisting their hands clockwise and counterclockwise as I asked more and more questions. And halfway mm-hmm. through the deposition, they snapped the glasses in half. Oh, um, no. <laughs> it was this really, really fun moment. It was great. So I got to cross-examine him at trial. And question two out of my mouth was, you know, so so. do you remember when I deposed you? Yes. In your deposition, isn't it true that you said X? And, and I got away with the first one. And then I said, isn't it true that you said why? And the judge jumped in and said, Mr. Torres, can, can we proceed in the normal fashion? Right. And fair. Right. Because I was an, an associate and I was just like kind of out in a little bit over my head. So the funny part here is, as I read this as somebody who was in that that spot, Alina Haba has no idea how to ask E. Jean Carroll about certain tweets. And here's what you do is in advance, disclosed on your exhibit list, you will have taken all of the tweets that you intend to ask her about. You will have marked them with things like Defense Exhibit 94, right? And then you put that document in front of it. So you you, you do a question, right? Did you see any tweets? I can't recall. Okay, Ms. Carroll, I'm going to put in front of you what we've marked as Defense Exhibit 94. Do you recognize this document? Yes. What is this document? This appears to be a screenshot of my tweets. What does it say? And then you have it read from that. And Alina did it backwards and missed every single step. And just watching, like, you know, my heart would go out to her if she were someone's associate. But she's not. She's the senior partner at her law firm representing the goddamn (laughs) president of the goddamn United States, former president. He's not the president. Yeah, well. He thinks he is. Anyway. So Alina may not know how to get evidence in, but she does know how to request a mistrial, (laughs) and she did it twice. Uh, No. Okay, to be fair, that's not quite right. The first time, she didn't ask for a mistrial. She asked for Judge Kaplan to recuse himself because one of Carol's lawyers, Sean Crowley, is Judge Kaplan's former law clerk. And that's not a thing. If that were... Half of the judges in Maryland would have to disqualify half of the lawyers that appear before. Like, no, that's preposterous. And in fact, everybody knows that your the the judge for whom you clerked is very likely to be excessively hard on you when you appear before that judge as as a lawyer as a like. No, that's not an insuperable con. Like that happens all the goddamn time. Right. And then she moved for a mistrial because Carol deleted some of the death threats against her. And Alina said that was spoliation of evidence. And perhaps technically she is correct. 
but the remedy is not a mistrial. And the time to talk about that was not like as a gotcha on the witness stand. No, like the time to talk about that is in discovery when you move to compel, right? Like, so look, I don't think this is anywhere near spoliation, right? Like what, what happened was E. Jean Carroll deleted harassing emails that she received. And then Alina Haba tried to say that that was destruction of evidence, which you have to do way more to establish that that was relevant evidence that she was ordered not to destroy, that she destroyed anyway. And again, the time for all of that was five years ago in discovery, not in cross-examination. Right? Like it was, it's such a pathetic stunt. Right. So that's why Judge Kaplan said denied and the jury will disregard everything Ms. Haba just said. Haba, actually, you know, it's funny that when she was trying to get her to do admit to like doing something bad, uh, she also tried to say, like, you tweeted about pornography. So you're a slutty slut or whatever. I don't know what the whole point of that was. It was really gross. And weirdly enough, Carol was talking about being scared and having a gun and getting bullets for a gun that she's inherited from her father. And Alina was like, I got you to admit that you have an unlicensed gun, which I don't even know. Trump burped later on in the day about the spoliation of evidence and the unlicensed gun. And why isn't this case dismissed? Because that's not how any of this works. Right. Yeah. 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 You do not establish, right? This is not Perry Mason. This is a civil trial for damages. You do not get the witness to break down and confess that she's been violating the New York firearms law on the stand. And even if she had, like, I, I, if I will say it this way, Roberta Kaplan would have been within her rights to make a Rule 403 motion to strike for, you know, that being unduly prejudicial, if she thought it was at all prejudicial regarding her client, which clearly she was not too concerned about it. So, yeah. Right. I mean, I really don't understand what Haba was doing here. She just was, it, it appeared to me that she was trying to make herself maximally disliked by the jury. So, for instance, she kept trying to get Carol to admit that she she liked talking to her. So I think Carol at one point said in a deposition, I like it when you ask the questions. And Haba was trying to imply that Carol loves the attention and thus wasn't harmed by being defamed. And on redirect by her attorney, Roberta Kaplan, it emerged that Carol said that because she felt safer talking about sexual assault with a female lawyer than with a male lawyer. And I mean, what did Haba think she was going to accomplish by doing that in front of the jury? Ensure that the jury hates her client if they don't already? I mean, I don't know. Yeah. And Haba tried to imply that Carol reaped some kind of financial windfall from her accusation, which just seemed so off to me. Yeah. Uh, for somebody that that brags about driving the, the you know, black G-Wagon or whatever it is, like, right. for, for her to make this huge deal, I mean, this went on for half an hour about how E. Jean Carroll went from $70,000 a year to $100,000 a year. In, like, and at the same time, right, she got fired from her job at Elle magazine, which she'd had since, you know, the, the early 90s. And, you know, she started her own sub stack. She worked very hard. Like, I, yeah. It's right. It's not it's not that much money. So and remember, this is a trial that's taking place in New York City. You cannot rent a studio apartment in New York City for less than like three thousand dollars a month. I mean, yeah. okay. objectively speaking, one hundred thousand dollars is a lot of money. Uh But this has not been an amazing cash windfall 
for yeah. Carol. And I do not think the jurors are going to be impressed with, you know, the $30,000 a year that she's making, you know, in addition to what she was making before when they live in this expensive place. And yeah. So after that, for reasons unclear to me, Muppet <laughs> Madayo, that's Michael Madayo, Hava's, Hava's partner, tried to cross-examine the expert witness on d- damages. Remember, that's Dr. Ashley hum- Humphreys. And that was a shit show. <laughs> so... I love that Ashley Humphreys has made a niche for herself as an expert witness in people who have been defamed by Donald Trump. Like, I, you know, God, God well, bless you, Well, she did Rudy Humphreys. Giuliani, not, not yeah, entirely right. well, the same. By, but, yeah. MAGA, by MAGA world, right? Like, you know, it's, yeah. it's raining soup and she went out there with a bucket. So good good on her. Medayo's cross was uh, interesting. Um, yeah. He, he spent a long time harping on it disparity between the the numbering of the exhibit like i was i was trying to figure it out and it was like i you know there was a typo or something i I think what happened here because remember that there were initially three statements in the complaint that eugene carroll was suing on and she removed the june 24th statement and so Dr. Humphreys went back and removed the portion of her damages calculation that pertained to that statement. And I think that caused the like Excel spreadsheets formatting to be off. I I don't know. I'm trying to piece this together from third hand accounts of, you know, what what happened in cross examination. But it sure didn't seem like a smoking gun. Right. Like Right. And, and Judge Kaplan jumped in and was like, OK, let me make this easy. Here are the two exhibits. This is how it lines up. Are we clear? Move on. And then, and again, remember, when you are cross-examining an expert witness, what you want to do, other than, you know, like you want to probe for bias or that sort of you, you want to attack either the methodology or a mismatch between the methodology and the report itself and the damages, right? But, but instead... Like there was a long line of questioning about like why Dr. Humphreys didn't include some of the nice things that people have said about Eugene Carroll in his dam- in her damages report. Like, yeah, like like a damage assessment is a scale and like, you know, you have to calculate all the positive things that happen in life and, and then, you know, offset them with the negative things. It was it was bonkers. Yeah. Yeah. So court is not in session tomorrow. They they were not scheduled. They're they're gonna come back Monday and I think Trump is in theory going to testify next week. That will that will make this look like a well-oiled machine Ooh. that is going to be some <laughs> crazy shit. So watch this space. And you know, the best thing that happened today was that Alina Haba basically got all of law Twitter back together. But I mean it was it was like a, it was like a reunion because her performance was so gonzo that over on Blue Sky, which is, you know, I, I mean I got to write about it and I called it Nerd Prom cuz cuz it is. But over at, at the Nerd Prom site, you know, everybody was there. We were all having a good old laugh and and it was it was nice. It was it was like the good old days of 2021 when we did this on Twitter and it was and it was real fun. <laughs> so thank you, Alina. But I do I do want to close with with Carol because, you know, Eugene Carroll did a really, really brave thing here. And it's it's fun to make fun of her lawyers. God knows I love my job. But this was a hard thing. This woman is 80 years old and she's been through a lot. And, you know, she didn't reap a major windfall. She said she was doing this to kind of show that women could fight back. And she did. She's, you know, she she said the president called me a liar 26 times. It ended the world I had been living in. I'm in a new world. 
And she says that sometimes she gets death threats a hundred times a day. So I think that we ought to just acknowledge the sacrifice that she made, not to give us this spectacle, but because it is it is a meaningful thing to say there is accountability for people who do bad things, no matter how powerful they are. So mad props to her. So why don't we move just to, real briefly to the Southern District of Florida, where Trump and his lawyers are back on their bullshit. Yeah. I want to talk specifically about Trump's latest efforts to enlist Judge Eileen Cannon, Federalist Society weirdo, in further borking the documents prosecution that is before her. Remember, Trump successfully got her to invent anomalous jurisdiction in an effort to prevent the FBI from being able to carry out a search warrant until the 11th Circuit told her no. Uh, Well, on Tuesday, Team Trump filed a 68-page motion to compel discovery. And look, this has a wide range of crazy conspiracy theory shit in it. Like, I want to break down exactly what it's trying to do, because I think almost everybody that's analyzed this has has missed kind of what Trump is actually asking for. Yeah. And just let me break in and note that this is where we pulled a pin because he he tried something quite similar in D.C. in the election interference case. And that was kind of the motion in limine that they were arguing about. That was a response to him trying to bring up all this crazy conspiracy theory shit. Right. Right. So, again, maximal fairness here. Let's start with the general principle. We've broken this down a lot, but it's Brady versus Maryland. That's a 1963 Supreme Court decision that says it's a a good it's a it's a foundational principle of criminal defense law. Right. That says that prosecutors have a duty to turn over to defense counsel exculpatory evidence that they discover in the course of investigating the case. Right. And they have to do more than just like turn over. I don't know stuff they stumble across. Right. Like they have to affirmatively search the evidence that's in their possession for anything that could help the defense. Right. And that means inconsistent things that prosecution's witnesses have said, right? That means the existence of alibi witnesses that the defendant may not know about. And of course, it means physical evidence that contradicts the prosecution's theory of the case. It's it's interpreted broadly, right? Like one of the few criminal cases in which I have been involved, uh, I think well illustrates this principle. So I I got a call from a, a judge friend of mine who asked me pro bono to represent a victim in a violent crime, right? And that was a a honeypot scheme, right? Like my client was lured out by two women to buy drugs and then was surprised by the hidden boyfriend and beaten within an inch of his life, right? Like spent eight weeks in a coma. Yeah. The prosecution had zero interest in prosecuting my guy for trying to buy drugs, right? They did not care. They wanted his testimony against the boyfriend, the, the defendant charged with assault. But my client gave inconsistent statements to the AUSA, right? So first he said, no, I was definitely not there to buy drugs. I was rescuing kittens from the trees at three in the morning. And after my reminding him that he had an immunity deal, right? Like he admitted that, okay, maybe he was there to buy drugs, right? And after that interview, the AUSA called me up and I went down to his office and he advised me like, look, I feel like I've got to turn those statements that your client said to me in his interview over to the defendant under Brady. Right. And obviously he did. I don't think that was a close call. Was that a 
close yeah, call no, in I your don't mind? think it's a close call at all. But right, like that's right. I, that's illustrative. And look, like we knew what was going to happen, which was the state was going to put on the victim on the stand, and he was going to be subject to some pretty withering cross examination by mm-hmm. you know the lawyer representing the guy that beat him within an inch of his life. And so you know that's the way the system works. I should add. That is not the normal rule in civil litigation, right? Like, so, Liz, if you sue me and I have information that would definitely help your case, I am not at all required to tell your lawyers and or turn that information over to you, right? Like, now, I can't, I can't hide it. I can't destroy that evidence. But, you know, it's up to your lawyers to ask the right questions that would require me to disclose that evidence during discovery. If they don't, you know get better lawyers, right? Like that is the core principle of the adversarial system. In general, litigants hire lawyers who represent their interests, not, you know, the abstract interests of justice. So Brady's an exception to that, right? It's a thing criminal prosecutors have to do that ordinary lawyers don't. And so as I stated at the outset, like one aspect of Brady is that prosecutors have to affirmatively search through their their files for potentially exculpatory evidence. Right. So Brady is also a really good illustration of the difference between saying that there are rights or duties on the one hand and implying remedies on the other, right? Because since 1963, when SCOTUS handed down that rule in Brady, a lot of criminal defendants have come forward and they've tried to argue like, oh, hey, look, we found this one piece of exculpatory evidence after the fact. That means my client gets to go free or at minimum they get a new trial, right? And and. No, like that, that's not always the remedy, right? Like just because prosecutors have the duty to turn over exculpatory evidence doesn't mean that if you discover one piece after your conviction that they didn't produce that, you know, you get a new trial, right? Instead, there's a materiality test, right? Like is is that evidence that could have made a difference to your ability to get a fair trial? And did the prosecutors have an obligation to turn that over to you? And and if Mm -hmm. both of those criteria are met, then you might get a new trial. Trump, right. And, and and again, I feel sad that we have to say this every couple of episodes or so, but like we're not team prosecutor here at opening arguments, right? Like <laughs> these no. are good rules. So that's the general principle, right? Opposite that, I want to talk about the way that prosecutors could play fast and loose with those rules. And and so therefore, like what courts are on guard against, right? So suppose you have an international intelligence concern, right? And the CIA opens up an investigation, right? And that investigation that goes on for a year, they get uh, wiretaps, they, they get subpoenas, and it points back to a U.S.-based spy, Liz Dye, right? The CIA- has no jurisdiction. Mean, they have no domestic law enforcement function, right? So what they they so the CIA can't arrest you. They can refer out their file to the FBI, and they arrest the ringleader spy, you. Okay, and so you're indicted and arrested and arraigned, and you're tried for espionage. As, as You'll well. never catch me, coppers. <laughs> Here's an obvious thing that the prosecutors can't do, right? Your defense lawyer says, "Okay, we want all the Brady material. The prosecutors can't be like, "Okay, well, we're going to search our files uh, and we're going to search the FBI's files. But that's it. We're not going to search anything else because your lawyer is going to be like, come on. The CIA drove this investigation. They're the ones that are likely to have exculpatory evidence, right? Contradictory witness statements, all that stuff. And so you got to search their files as well. And there are a bunch of cases that basically say that. And the the concept here is what counts as the prosecution team. And there are a 
ton of cases that are like, look, the government can't hold exculpatory evidence in its left hand and then say, well, I'm going to search everything that is in my right pocket. Right. Like, no, you got to search everything that belongs to the prosecution team. Right. But you can't turn to the prosecutors and say, I want every piece of paper that, you know, anybody involved in this office has ever touched because that's not a thing. And you can't say, I don't know, use this litigation as an excuse to ask the prosecutors to disclose a whole bunch of classified evidence that, you know, (laughs) would slow this trial down to uh, stand still and make sure that it had to go after the election, which, like, we all know it's going to go after the election. But Trump demanding a whole bunch of classified bullshit is him trying to make damn sure that it goes maybe in 2025 or 2026. Why not? Yeah, or or 2020 never. Yeah. (laughs) Right. So what Trump has done here is to define the term prosecution team as basically the entire executive branch. So here's here's who Trump says is part of the prosecution team and whom he is entitled to kind of ask the prosecutors to go and cull all of their records. The National Archives, the intelligence community as a whole, meaning the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, the CIA, the FBI, and the National Security Council. The White House, as in (laughs) all of it. The entire Justice Department, the entire Special Counsel's Office, the FBI's Counterintelligence Division, and the Secret Service. All of them, (laughs) according to Donald Trump, are part of the prosecution team because maybe one of them used the coffee room in the special counsels. No, that's not why. But it's really not like that far away from it. They're saying anyone who was involved at any step of this process is part of the prosecution team. And that's not how any of this works. Yeah, I reached out to two anonymous prosecutors at the DOJ, and they both confirmed to me that it is standard practice for the DOJ to reach out to various state and federal agencies in connection with the prosecution, and that AUSAs are cognizant of not coordinating too much to avoid those agencies being considered part of the prosecution team. And in fact, the DOJ manual lists a bunch of factors to be considered in determining whether to review potentially discoverable information from another federal agency. And those there's like nine on the list. And again, you consider them all as part of the whole package. It is, you know, whether the prosecutor and the agency conducted a joint investigation, whether the agency played an active role in the prosecution, including conducting arrests, whether the prosecutor knows and has access to discoverable information held by the agency, whether the prosecutor has obtained other information from the agency, the degree to which the information has been shared with the agency, whether a member of an agency has been made a special assistant U.S. attorney, the degree to which the decisions have been jointly made regarding criminal charges and the degree to which the interests of the parties in parallel proceedings diverge such that the information gathered by one party is not relevant to the other party. And and when you look at that whole list, it's obvious the National Archives did not arrest anybody or participate in the decision to charge Donald Trump or do any of those things that all of those factors taken together would lead you to believe that they are part of the prosecution team. It's it's nonsense. Yeah, I just want to kind of get in a more kind of granular level. The point of this exercise is not just to get all of the classified information in. It is part of Trump's fishing expedition to prove that the prosecution is impermissibly biased, right? That's why he wants to get the White House. He, he wants to kind of, his theory is that 
Joe Biden is directing this prosecution. And, he, you know, we've, we've talked about this with respect to the documents case where he suggested that Joe Biden had leaked a story to the New York Times anonymously saying that he really wanted Merrick Garland to get tough. And that was evidence of bias. I mean, what he's doing is trying to connect these things up. And and in fact, one of the things which he refers to in the pleading as evidence of bias is that Biden didn't back his um, his invocation of executive privilege with respect to the January 6th committee, that Biden was like, no, just give him this stuff. For instance, they say President Biden's unprecedented and politically motivated abuse of President Trump's executive privilege in response to inquiries from the January 6th committee and in the subsequent ported delegation of NARA is a basis to infer that the investigation is tainted. And in support of this proposition, they they said a dicta from Justice Kavanaugh's concurring statement in the NARA case that went to the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. And by the way, that statement was an eight to one refusal to overturn <laughs> Biden's you know, refusal to invoke privilege. And one of the other things which they're trying to leverage is that it, it emerged after this indictment in the Southern District of Florida that there had been this kind of random security clearance at the Department of Energy and the Department of Energy revoked that security clearance. And you look, clearly it was just like a clerical error. Nobody was, it was, wasn't out there and it wouldn't make any difference, right? The fact that Trump may have had the security clearance wasn't the issue. He still wasn't allowed to store, you know, nuclear secrets in the bathroom at Mar-a-Lago. Right. But he's trying to point to all of this as evidence that the whole government is in cahoots against him. So, you know, for instance, the Office of Director of National Intelligence evaluated the national security implications of the the said nuclear secrets being in the Mar-a-Lago shower. And that's how he says that the ODNI and the National Security Council are part of the prosecution team because they evaluated the fallout. So I, I think it's important to clock this in a whole bunch of ways, right? It's a way to chew the clock up to get more time. And it's also a way to ask for so much stuff that the government won't give him that it, it may be an excuse for Judge Cannon to drop this case? Yeah, I I don't see her getting to dropping the case, but... but well, no, uh, not dropping the case, obviously, yeah. but, but, but forcing the government to give up things that it doesn't want. You know, this is the gray male situation. We've talked about right. it a whole bunch of times with respect to SIPA, that if the government is forced to do all of these things, give up these classified documents, they might drop charges or or dial back their prosecution in some way. Yeah, I agree with that. I think the bottom line takeaway to remember is this is just as egregious as the things that appear to be egregious on their face, even though, you know, you have to kind of dig into the weeds to understand what's the law of who counts as being on the prosecution team. This is not the way that any discovery proceeds in any federal criminal case. And, um, you know, can I just before we go, can I say my one favorite thing that they tried to get with this? Absolutely. So Trump's theory, it goes like this. Thomas Wyndham is a <laughs> prosecutor working on the D.C. election interference case. OK, we talked about him at the beginning. He's the one who didn't get held in contempt, along with Jack Smith. Thomas Wyndham works on the D.C. election interference case. Thomas Wyndham, at some point, interviewed witnesses in the documents case. And because Thomas Wyndham is connected to both of those cases, Trump's lawyers in the documents case should be able to get some evidence in the D.C. election interference case that they never would be able to get. And the evidence that they want is any coordination between the special counsel's office and slash or the White House 
and the Fulton County District Attorney's Office because they're so they're trying to make I mean, it's, <laughs> if you think about it, they're trying to make a whole bunch of leaps. They're trying to undermine the Fulton County District Attorney's Office by going. They're saying, well, the documents case and Thomas Wyndham and Thomas Wyndham to the election interference case and the election interference case to the White House and the White House to Fulton County District Attorney. Can we get those documents, please? And I think that that's just a really good illustration of how this is just like just not good faith. It's it's yeah. it's bullshit. Yeah, I think that's an outstanding example. Well, Liz, thanks, as always, for being here. Uh, that's going to do it for today. We will see everybody on Monday. All right. See you guys. You got into Harvard Law? What, like it's hard? This has been Opening Arguments with Andrew and Liz. If you love the show and want to support future episodes, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com law. If you can't support us financially, it'd be a big help if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Spotify, whatever podcast delivery vehicle you use. And be sure to tell all your friends about us. For questions, suggestions, and complaints, email us at openarguments at gmail.com. The show notes and links are on our website at openargs.com. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at openargs. This podcast is a production of Opening Arguments Media, LLC, with assistance from Teresa Gomez and Deborah Smith. Copyright 2023, Opening Arguments Media, LLC, all rights reserved. <laughs>